0: Welcome back to the Rainy Day Horror Show, okay? I hope you guys are having a good, you know, weekend, right? It's Sunday, you know, unfortunately, and we have to go back to work tomorrow, but we get a short week, right? Thanksgiving is on Thursday, and it is... God, I love Thanksgiving, right? You know, the family beef that comes with it, the fights that'll break out, right? You know, you're just talking about one thing and then your brother or your sister brings up, you know, an embarrassing story from like five years ago and you get upset so you throw them into the fireplace and then the in-laws just start fucking beating up your parents and then now you're fighting everybody and it's just a wonderful time, right? Thanksgiving is the perfect, you know, holiday just to fucking get loose, you know, get riled up, alright, so, you know, this is going to be a quick, short week, thankfully, you know, don't have to worry about work that much, and if you're lucky, you get Friday off, okay, I am one of those unfortunate people that doesn't get Friday off, but that's okay, that's okay, alright, if you don't know who I am, I am Dusty McBalls, and I am the certified cougar hunter, and boy, do we have a beautiful fucking episode for today. Now, I know last week's episode was a little short, okay? It was, alright? I didn't plan on it being short, but it turned out that way. So, I am extending this episode, making up for last week. It's gonna be a long fucking episode, okay? There is so much information about this topic that we're doing today, and spoilers, we're doing the diet love pass incident. So, it's gonna be a long fucking episode okay because this mysterious incident happened in the 50s in Russia and there's a lot of shit that is now well not now but has been coming out since 1959 and it is just there is so much to fucking cover and so much to break down so this is going to be a long episode okay so get dug in right you know Get something to drink, get a snack, alright? Don't want you parched, I want you fully, you know, invested in this episode with me because there was a lot of facts, there was a lot of theories, there was a, just a bunch of shit, okay? So, strap those Crocs on, put them bitches in adventure mode, and let's take a trip to Russia, okay? So, our story is... Begins with the birth of a Russian baby named Igor Dialov. Now, Igor was born in 1936 in Sverdlovsk, Russia, which is now present day Yikitarin. Yik yik, 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 What the fuck was that? I short circuited for a second. Hold on. There's a lot of Russian fucking names in this, and I'm sorry to anybody that's Russian. I am going to fucking butcher them, okay? I'm sorry. I don't speak Russian, so just cut me a little bit of slack, okay? So, I think it's Yekatenberg. Could be wrong, but we're going to roll with Yekatenberg, alright? And when he popped out of the womb, this man was legit on baby crack. Like, okay, let's rewind. He wasn't a crack baby, but this dude was so fucking smart, even as a kid. Like... As a child, this man would build radios from scratch or basically build anything that he could dismantle and then put back together again. Plus, he was also an avid camper and loved to explore the wilderness. So this is why... I got a burp, hold on. So this is kind of why he, you know, built a bunch of this stuff. It was for him to go and explore in... The wilderness, alright, now if you're wondering, you know, if you're one of those people that are like, oh, Dusty, my kid's five, and he could do that too, like, that's not impressive, well, shut your little whore mouth, okay, because in 1957, when the great space race between the United States of America and the Russians, when it was in full fucking swing, Igor who was 21 at the time, decided to build a fucking telescope from scratch so him and his friends could watch the little Sputnik, the little, little satellite dish, float through the emptiness of space just for the fuck of it. There was no point, right? Just did it just because. Did it for shits and giggles, right? And... Other than being incredibly smart, Igor had a pretty much a normal child childhood. Well, I guess not really normal because he lived in a communist country, but as normal as you could have in said communist country. Now, as he graduated from high school, he ended up attending Earl Polytechnic Institute, or UPI for short. Now this school is a very prestigious like university college in Russia and it's the leading technical university in their country and allegedly they would just dish out top flight engineers to work in Russia's nuclear power plants their communication and weapon industries and other military engineering applications, okay? Now, at the time, Igor was an engineering student at UPI, and during his time there, since he was an avid, outdoorsy kind of dude, he would lead numerous trips with fellow classmates to explore the Russian wilderness, which was not only fun for him and his friends but also gave him the opportunity to test outdoor equipment that he either invented or improved upon, like I said a little bit earlier. Now, just for a little bit of a background on the state that Russia was in at the time of this tragedy, Stalin had just died and Nikita Khrushchev just took over. And when Khrushchev took over, he basically pretty much empowered all of the Russian citizens with a lot of hope and optimism. He had freed a lot of political figures from Stalin's gulags, and he was able to start a huge economy boost amongst the Russian citizens. He was also able to raise the standard of living. Plus, you can't forget that the whole nation got a huge boost of confidence after they realized how terrified the U.S. citizens were of Sputnik, you know, the whole, oh gosh, Russia's spying on us, that whole bullshit, that just really gave them a huge boost of confidence. So, all in all, at the time, well, when Khrushchev first started out they were doing pretty okay and then after a few years he kind of shit the bed in the early 60s but that's different that's a different conversation okay now in the late nine well not the late 50s but like in late 1958 Igor started planning for a winter expedition that would ultimately lead to not only his death but the death of eight other people Not intentionally, okay? I don't want to, you know, say that he did this just, you know, because he wanted to kill himself and a bunch of people. No. He planned this trip that was supposed to take place in January or February. Well, start in January of 1959, and it just happened to be their last expedition in living form, okay? Now, this trip was that he planned was a pretty ambitious, like, 16-day cross-country ski trip in the Earl Mount Range, which is a mountain range that covers, like, 1,500 miles or 2,500 miles, not miles, I meant to say kilometers, 2,500 kilometers for, you know, the non-American friends that I have over in Europe and stuff like that, okay? And this mountain range runs from the northern part of Russia to the southern part of, whoa, hold on, sorry, let me backtrack. This mountain range is on the western part of Russia, dividing Russia from Europe, or Asia from Europe, and it runs from the top of Russia and goes all the way down, right? Now, Igor submitted his expedition proposal to the UPI Sports Club, And they basically approved it almost immediately. This expedition not only taking place in the Earl Mountains, but was actually going to start 350 miles north of Sverdlovsk in a very traditional Mansi territory. And if you don't know who the Mansi people are, they are basically the indigenous people of Russia. You know, like how North, like, The U.S., we have Native Americans, and Canada has the Inuits. The Mansi people are Russia's Native Americans or Canada's Inuits, okay? They're the indigenous people over there, all right? Now, at the time of this trip, the Mansi people are still very traditional. They still kind of stuck to their ways even after Russia started pushing its control more north towards Siberia. Now, once they reached this specific area, they would officially start their 200-mile ski route, which, at the time, no Russian, as far as anyone you know knew, had ever taken before. Now, in this area in the Earl Mountains where this expedition was taking place, They didn't have to worry about a whole lot of shit. It wasn't like doing a trek on Mount Everest. These mountains weren't that crazy dangerous. They were just normal, flowy, just hiking mountains, right? The only thing that the Diet expedition had to truly worry about, minus running out of supplies, was the extreme cold temperatures deep snow, and extremely high winds. It did help, though, that the area that they were exploring in was mostly a part of the Boreal Forest, which consisted of birch and fir trees. And if you're not a survivalist like me, I had to look it up, that basically means those trees did provide a little bit of protection from the high winds, and you know, from like if there was an avalanche that were to happen, these trees would just provide a little bit of tech protection and safety from the outdoor elements. But there were still pockets which there were no trees, okay? And they happened to pick a spot that wasn't directly near. The tree line, it was a few hundred meters up, and it ultimately, like I you'll find out, it ultimately fucked them hard, okay? So, after he got his trip approved and laid out the plan of what's supposed to happen over this 16-day trip, Igor decided to finally pick his team that he was going to take up this mountain range. Now, his team consisted of students and graduates from UPI, with the exception of one man, Semyon Zolotoryov, who was a 37 year old war- world. Whoa, what the fuck? That's a tongue twister. He was a 37 year old World War II veteran with an old fashioned mustache, steel crowns on his teeth, and tattoos. Honestly, When I think of a Russian, this is the guy that I truly think about, right? Just a big burly dude with a mustache and just does not give a single fuck. This, he reminds me of that guy. I'm getting those vibes from him, all right? His dead spirit is here with me and it's giving me those vibes. Is his spirit really here with me? No, it's not. I completely made that up, but like, it's just a feeling I got, all right? Other than, you know, Semyon, the nine other explorers, including Igor, were either students or graduates of UPI. Plus, they were all experienced winter cross skiers and they were among the elite of Soviet youth. Okay. In this group, other than Igor and Semyon, was Gregory Krivnashenko. Totally fucked that up, and I'm sorry, Gregory, but that was that was a big one. That was a really, really big one, okay? And Gregory was one of Igor's closest friends. Gregory had graduated from UPI two years prior to this expedition, and Gregory was currently working as an engineer at the Mayak Nuclear Power Plant in Chela Bank. Chillabinks. Chillabinks. We're going to go with Binks. All right. Gregory was known basically as the entertainer in the group. He loved to tell jokes and he would sing and play his mandolin. Right. Now, the other members of the group were Rustem Slobodin, Nikolay Thebolt Brignolis, Yuri Yudin, Yuri Dorshenko, Alexander Kolovatov. And Ludia, Ludia, I don't know if it's Lydia or Ludia, but we're going to go Ludia because it sounds funny, Dubonina, and she was the youngest of the group, being 20 at the time. And she was also allegedly a hardcore communist. She was into the communist shit. She was all in there. She was just fucking balls deep in the commie world, okay? Now, the party first started their trip by leaving Sverdlovsk on January 23rd, 1959 by hitching a train to head to Ivdell. Now, on this train ride to Ivdell, several members of the party hid under the train seats in order to avoid buying tickets, and it worked. They were able to get to where they're going by just fucking hiding. And they had so much fun on this, like, beginning part of this trip because it turns awful. But they had so much fun on the beginning of this trip. And the photos that were recovered and the journals that were recovered by investigators after the incident showed them all smiling messing around with each other and even laughing when Gregory got detained by the police at a layover train station for playing his mandolin and pretending to be homeless, panhandling for money, right? But thankfully, this little trickster, this little jokester wasn't detained for long and they were finally able to reach their, well next destination, not the final destination, but their next destination after riding trains for two days straight. Once they reached Ivdale, they then hopped on a bus and they rode that sucker another day and then they got off that bitch, then hitchhiked and got picked up in a woodcutter's truck, used that ride until they reached their next destination where they then finally skied all the way to an abandoned logging camp called Second Northern. Now, the party stayed the night at the abandoned logging camp. And at this logging camp, Yuri Uden you know, pinched his sciatic nerve. Alright? Bro, I feel that. That should be hurting. Okay? I have mine pinched sometimes. Like, well, not sometimes. It's pinched. And it fucking hurts. Right? getting out of bed, it is, oh, and it's like pinched right in my fucking hip, that shit is no joke, right, that shit is fucking painful, okay, it just is, if you have, if you have a pinched sciatic nerve, you know exactly what that feels like, like, if I sit, like, I'm a bony dude, right, I'm real bony, I have no ass, so it's just straight pelvis on, like, seats, like, hard fucking seats, and sitting like that for too long, like, at a hockey game, or in school, or at, at like, work or some shit like that, that shit fucking hurts when, you know, you get up, okay? But since he had his pinched nerve, he had to pull out of the trip and dropped the number from 10 Explorers to 9. And, spoiler alert, Yuri is the only one to technically survive this trip, even though he didn't go on like the whole trip, he went on half of it, he's the only one that would come back alive, right? Now, when the next morning rolled around, which would be January 28th, 1959, Yuri loaded up his shit and headed home, and the others loaded up their packs and set off towards the mountains. Now, the plan, right, the plan for this trip was once they set off for the mountains, they were going to head to this tiny village called v- Visha. Whoa, that's a tough word. It's spelled weird. I think it said Visha, but we're just going to roll with it. And they were supposed to reach Visha by February 12th and radio back to UPI. Saying that they had arrived safely. And you know. We're coming back home. Alright. We finished the expedition. We're coming home. But. For the people that know this channel. And know how this channel operates. Well and also if you already know the story. That radio call. Never came in. So here's what. So here's what. Hap- so here's. What happened? So, here... What happened? So, here's what's happened. Here. What the fuck? So, here is what happened. So, here's what happened. There we go. So, here's what happened. But before we get into it, just gonna say, um, this story is kind of... Like, I can't tell it word for word like how I usually do of, like, the setup of what everything happened. Like, how it happened and everything like that. It's being told from the investigation side and they had to piece the story together on what happened. So it's going to be a little a little different, alright? So when February 12th had arrived and the Dietlov group never radioed back to the UPI Sports Club, UPI assumed that the group got held up by a massive snowstorm that was reported In Dyatlov's region of where they were exploring. So after February 12th came and went, UPI still hadn't heard from Dyatlov's group, and the family members were concerned. So they called, just like any normal parent, they called UPI and the local communist parties to, well, not parties, but like officials, right? To go out and go look for the missing students. And they eventually did, except UPI ended up waiting eight days before launching an investigation on the missing group. So on February 20th, 1959, several search parties that included UPI volunteer students, prison guards from the Ivdel camp, Mansi hunters, local police, and even the military set out to go look for the missing group. Now, for the first four days of searching, the search parties didn't find anything pointing to where the missing group had gone. But on February 25th, the UPI volunteer students ended up tracking, well, not tracking, but they ended up finding and then tracking ski tracks that were in the snow, and on the following day, they found a skier's tent. Now this skier's tent was located right above a tree line on a very remote mountain the Soviets called Height 1079, and it is referred to by the Mansi people as Dead Mountain or Kulatsykal, Okay. Now, when the search party found this tent, it was collapsed and largely covered in snow. So they dug out most of this tent and realized that there was like a bunch of slashes in the side of it. And when the search party peeked their you know head in after digging it out, they found like multiple pairs of skier boots, axes equipment that was just laid out near the front door of the tent, food that was also laid out as if people were about to eat, and there was also a stock of wood for the heating stove, clothes, cameras, and other personal items like journals, cameras, things of that nature. Now, during my research, I couldn't find whose journals these were, And who was staying in this tent. But I am going to make an assumption. That obviously people were in it. Because it has stuff. But I think it was just one big. They never said how big this tent was. So I assume it was one big tent. That they all just lived in. Together. Okay. Which is kind of weird. Because there's only one girl in the group. And that's Dubonina. And I don't know how that worked. Maybe it was like a weird porno gangbang thing that they always did before they went to bed at night. I don't fucking know. I'm just throwing out shit, okay? But it didn't say how big this tent is, but I assume if there was only one that it was a massive fucking tent and all nine of these people slept in there, okay? Now, after they found this tent, the search parties all split up and they started looking for more clues, like a real-life Scooby-Doo crew that they... You know, happened to be, okay? And about a 100 feet downhill, this search party found more interesting clues to try and help unfold what happened to Igor's group. What they found were very distinct footprints of eight or nine people walking, not running, walking towards the tree line. And these footprints showed that some were wearing socks, some were wearing, you know, some were barefoot, and only one person happened to be wearing one singular ski boot, okay? Which is eerie, right? Why did they just start fucking walking out into the middle of God knows where, barely fucking clothed, right? Could they have been crazy? Could they have been doing PCP up in the mountains? I don't know, but we're going to fucking find out because there are so many fucking theories on this thing. So just sit back, okay? We'll, we'll, we'll come back to this. We'll come back to this creepy incident, okay? A search party member would later testify in court saying, Some of the prints indicated that the person was either barefoot or in socks because you could see their toes. The search party then followed said footprints for six to seven hundred yards until they vanished near the tree line. And after that, the search party packed up their things, you know, for the day because it was getting late. And continued their search the following day where they found the bodies of Gregory, a.k.a. the comedic mandolin player, and Dorschenko now these two humans were found under a very very tall cedar tree huddled around a dead fire wearing only their underwear and the search party also happened to notice that roughly 12 to 15 feet above them up in the cedar tree the branches were broken and bits of skin and torn clothes were found on the trunk of the tree. Then, later that same day, the search party also found the bodies of Igor Dyatlov, who was, you know, the leader of this expedition, and Kolmogorova, okay? And their bodies were found farther up the slope, facing in the direction of the tent with their fists clenched. I meant to say clenched, with their fists clenched shut, okay? Investigators assume that Dyatlov and Kolmogorova were trying to take their, you know, not take, but make their way back to the tent for, you know, safety reasons. You know, it's obviously fucking cold out there. And unfortunately, they basically died before they could even make it, right? They froze to death. Now, as the day was coming to an end, the search party shipped off these four bodies to the coroner to get autopsied, and what they found was, well, wasn't anything less than confusing and horrific. Gregory had blackened fingers, ultimately from frostbite. He had third-degree burns on one of his shins and one of foot, I was going to say one of his feet, but like he had burn marks on one foot, he also had chunks of flesh in his mouth that he had bitten off his right hand. Doroshenko's body had burnt hair on one side of his head and a charred sock, and all four of these bodies were found covered in bruises, abrasions, cuts, and scrapes. Now, the fifth body that was discovered was Slobodan, and he was also covered in bruises, cuts, scrapes, and abrasions. The autopsy for him also revealed that he had a minor skull fracture, okay? Now, Slobodan's body was found a few days later in a similar way to Dialov. Slobodan was found on a slope heading back towards the tent, he had one sock on one foot and one ski boot on the opposing foot, okay? Now, by the time Slobodin's body was found, the Russian police decided to open up a homicide investigation that was led by Prosecutor Lev Ivanov. Now, Lev, along with the local authorities, decided to run a toxicology test on the retrieved victims along with collecting witness testimonies they also made diagrams and maps of this really confusing scene and did the other normal stuff that police do when they investigate homicide scenes like collecting evidence and doing all of that forensic you know stuff okay now as they were collecting evidence from the scene. Lev decided to have the tent and all of its contents that were inside of you know said tent flown by helicopter to the nearest police station where they reset it up as they had found it on the mountain. Now, as they were, you know. Further investigating the tent and its contents at the police station, they made a huge discovery. Okay, A seamstress who had come to the station to do a uniform fitting happened to notice all the slashes in the tent. And she happened to say that those cuts were made from the inside, like someone was trying to escape. Meaning, these skiers were so terrified of whatever was happening outside of that tent that they fled with very little clothing on, knowing that the outside temperature was negative 25 degrees and they were in the middle of a blizzard. This was especially alarming since we know that they weren't beginners in outdoor survival okay and they knew going out there with very little clothing would be a fatal mistake right so this is where the mystery of the diet Love expedition officially starts and trust me when the theories get involved and the evidence and just Trust me, it gets even weirder. Now up until this point, there are still four bodies missing and they wouldn't be found until the upcoming spring in early May where a Mancy Hunter and his dog found a makeshift snow den two hundred and fifty feet south from the cedar tree where Gregory and Doroshenko were found. Now at first the search parties only found tattered clothing around the area. And the clothing that they had found at first was, you know, black sweatpants with the right leg, well, right pant leg cut off and the left half of a woman's sweater. Then they brought out avalanche probes and probed the den. And after probing, you know, probing it for a little bit, they retrieved a piece of flesh, and after that piece of flesh was retrieved, they started digging into the snow den, and what they found was the most horrific scene, well, there's been a lot of horrific scenes, but this, this is a horrific scene, okay, they f- they just found a horrific scene, right, don't know where I was going with it, but they found a fucking horrific scene, Okay. They found the four remaining victims and when the bodies were being autopsied, it showed that bolt's skull was fractured so severely that pieces of his skull had jabbed themselves into his brain. Dubanina and Zolotaroff Zolotaryov, Zolotarioff, I think is how you say it they both had crushed like chests and multiple broken ribs. Dubonina also had a hemorrhage in the right ventricle of her heart. The medical examiner would tell reporters that the damage that they had suffered is similar to the result of an impact of an automobile moving at high speeds. And on top of all that, Zolotaryov was missing his eyes, and Dubonino was missing her eyes, her tongue, and her upper lip. Now, as they recovered the scene, the search party and authorities noticed that the bodies of the victims were wearing clothes that were either cut off or taken from other bodies as they passed on into the afterlife, Okay. Forensic teams also tested the clothes for any DNA samples and, you know, any shit that could possibly rule to it being a homicide. And what they found was really interesting. It was really, really weird, okay? In the clothes of all nine victims, they found an unnaturally high amount of radiation that was embedded into them, okay? a radiological, I think I said that right, don't fucking know, it was a tough word, don't worry, I tried saying it multiple different times before even starting this episode, couldn't fucking do it, but this radiological expert testified that the bodies had been exposed to running water for months, and that these levels of radiation were originally many times greater, okay, then on May 28th, Lev Ivanov, the prosecutor, abruptly stopped the investigation because there weren't any signs of a homicide. And as he told the public this, he also told them that his role was to see if a homicide had occurred, not to clarify what happened to the Dialov expedition. But our story Doesn't end here. There was a lot more shit. Okay, we're about to. We're we're getting. We're almost there. Okay, we're almost to the theories. Okay, so after the investigation had you know ended, the Soviet government ended up jailing or firing a shit ton of officials that were somehow or some way tied to the expedition, like the UPI Sports Club director and the chairman of said sports club, they were fired, and they also fired the Communist Party secretary, the chairman of two workers unions, and a union inspector. Then, the Russian government classified all of the the files, and the evidence that was associated with the disappearance of these skiers, and on top of that, They banned any hiker or outdoor enthusiast from ever visiting that mountain range ever again for a pretty long time. And because of this incident, that mountain earned the nickname the Dietloff Pass. Now, because of the way the government treated this incident with this abrupt stop and just, you know, not really finding any answers or telling the victims' families what happened to the explorers, they got extremely upset and deeply unsatisfied. Now, because the families were upset, they started doing their own investigation, along with other citizens, to truly find out what happened to Dietlov and his crew. And this is where those crazy theories are about to start, you know, fucking happening. They're coming here, okay? They're just shooting in right now, just like when you get when you eat too much Taco Bell, you run to the bathroom and you just got, you know, a Dookie demon that's just shooting out of you. This this is what it is. This is that Dookie demon right here, okay? Our first theory takes place in 1990. All right. I know it's it's it's. 40 years, well, 30 years after the incident. But it's because the over the decades that had passed, there was a slew of documents that started becoming declassified by the Russian government. And because of these declassified files, massive amounts of movies, documentaries, websites, and message boards... Started popping up and people started sharing their conspiracies on what happened. This was also the same year when former prosecutor Lev Ivanov published an article about the. Ev- Whoa, hold on. I don't know what happened there, okay? But he published an article about the evidence he had found during his investigation and his theory on what happened to the Dyatlov group. It's also best to include that during his 1959 report on the Dyatlov expedition, he was told by his superiors not to include his own thoughts. The title of this article is called The Enigma of the Fireballs. And to make a long story short, It basically is just him talking about the skiers being killed by heat rays or balls of fire that are associated with UFOs. In his original examination of the 1959 scene, Lev had found trees with unusual burn marks in the bark which he claims that some kind of heat ray or powerful force... Whose nature is not com- well is completely unknown. Acted selectively on specific objects, and in this case, these specific objects that these alleged aliens were attacking was the Dyatlov expedition. Okay. He also noted that in the last photo of krivonshenko's camera, there was a picture. That showed flares of streaks of light against the jet black background, okay? Now, could it have been aliens? I don't know. I'm just, I don't... After reading what happened and all this information I'm about to share with you guys, I don't think it was aliens, okay? My two theories, I think it is. It was either a slab of snow, which we'll get into, which is kind of like an avalanche, or it was Russian testing gone wrong, okay? Missile testing gone wrong, and they just died. All right, but then again, that one's that one's iffy because I'll 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 explain it in a little bit. But I think after reading this, I think it was a slab avalanche that killed these people. Okay, well, you'll 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 understand what I mean here in a little bit. Okay, our second and third theory comes from Yuri Kuntsevich. Kunsevich. Okay, I think that's how you say it. I don't fucking know but we're rolling with it. And he is the president of the Dietlov Memorial Foundation that was founded in 2000. Yuri is a graduate from UPI and he also taught there as well. While he was a part of the UPI schooling district or whatever for those number of years, he also joined their sports club where he would lead tours to the Dietlov Pass. Yuri told reporter Douglas Preston in May of 2021 that Russians usually favor one of two theories. The skiers died because they had stumbled into a secret area where the Soviets were testing weapons or the group was killed by American spies. Yuri and most of the families believe that it was a missile launch that went horribly wrong ...and inflicted severe injuries among the Dietlov group. And the reason they... Well, the reason that they think this is because this missile launch went completely wrong. It made all of them flee their tent. And as they fled the tent, they either were froze to death or were killed by other Soviet military because they weren't supposed to see what they were doing, right? Yuri, who dropped out of the trip, not, well, different Yuri. There's like three different, there's three Yuris. okay? This is Yuri Yurden, the one with the pinched sciatic nerve. Yes, we're talking about him now, okay? And what he thinks, all right? Yuri, who dropped out of the trip, because, like I said earlier, his sciatic nerve, he would come out and say before his death in 2013 that his teammates had been taken from the tent by gunpoint and murdered, and the reason Dubanina had her tongue cut out was because she happened to be the most outspoken of the group. Now, to further support this theory of weapons testing, a bunch of claims from people who live in that specific area. Stated that they would consistently see balls. Or flashes of light. Near that location. And in 2008. A three foot long piece of metal. Was discovered in the area. Where the Dietlaw people died. And that is according to the Dietlaw foundation. Who took possession of this piece of metal. And they also said that this piece of metal happens to belong to a Soviet ballistic missile. Then, in 2013, Yevgen Okashev, who was Lev Ivanov's superior in the prosecutor's general office, was interviewed by the local paper and he stated that it was weird when him and his colleagues were instructed to test the recovered items for radiation. He also asked the Deputy Prosecutor General why the radiation test was even relevant. In response to that question, the deputy dodged it and any other questions that Okushev was asking. It didn't say specifically what questions he was asking. It just said that he was dodging all of them. Okay. The deputy then told Okushev to tell people That the deaths were accidental. And during that same interview. Okushev said. That the case was closed. And not on their orders. And as far as the Americans. Killing the Diet Live skiers. That. Theory. Is basically. Only strictly around Semyon, For the fact. That he was a World War II vet the oldest of the group, and had possible KGB links, okay? Now, the theory is that he was supposed to meet a CIA operative in this mountain that they were camping at, and he was supposed to give them misleading information, okay? And this misleading information is allegedly a piece of clothing that is contaminated by radioactive isotopes. All right, but the but the CIA agent, you know, since he's on his James Bond shit, he caught onto the misleading information and killed Semyon and the other Dyatlov members. Then the CIA basically just staged the crime scene. Okay, now I will tell you why I think this is fake. Well, not fake, but why I think these two theories and my favorite theory is coming up, but I'm not going to spoil it. The reason that this couldn't have happened, if their footprints were able to show up eight, ten days later, right? If you live in a cold state and you know snow, you realize that Snow is impossible to cover up anything, okay. Like, if I were to kill somebody out in the woods in the snow, you would be able to see our footsteps, and you would be able to it would just be easy to figure out what happened, okay. So, if there was a shootout between all of them, there would have been bullet wounds on the bodies, there would have been bullet holes in the trees, there would have been shell casings in the snow. There would have just been a lot of, it would have looked like a struggle, okay? And it didn't look like a struggle because like I said earlier, they walked to the woods. They didn't run. They weren't terrified. They strictly cut themselves out and they walked to the woods, okay? So that's why I don't think a struggle were to happen, why I don't think it's, you know, Either a CIA operative, and for the CIA operative, why the fuck would you? Why? Why would we be? Why would we be going to a remote location in Russia? It just doesn't make sense, right? It just doesn't make sense. Okay, so now we're gonna get into the avalanche theories. Well, not really a theory. They said maybe it was an avalanche and. That was basically quickly debunked because the slope of the hill that the group was, you know, on where they built their tent and stuff like that wasn't shallow. Was well, not was too shallow, and since it was too shallow, it couldn't cause an avalanche. And on top of that, the tent poles were still kind of standing and not crushed, right? And plus, there were no signs of people being dragged and there was, you know, nine sets of footprints that were, like we said earlier, walking to the woods. And that would have been non-existent if an avalanche had occurred. And if there had been an avalanche that did occur and the footprints were after the avalanche, there wouldn't be nine sets of footprints, because half of the group suffered fatal fucking injuries, okay? Like, they wouldn't have been able to, like, they'd just be dead. There would only be like four or five, okay? Not nine, right? So it can't be an avalanche, right? But it could be a slab avalanche, and we'll talk about that later, okay? We'll talk about that one later. But first, we're going to get to other theories about possibly maybe they were either had carbon monoxide poisoning from the stove in the tent. Maybe they were drinking bad alcohol and it made them mad. Or, which is probably the most out of like these quick little three, believable by some people, is that the Mansi people had killed the group because they were on sacred land. And through interviews with the Mansi people, They told investigators that the group was not in sacred land. And after that, they basically dismissed them because they were really helpful with locating the missing skiers. And I'm pretty sure you would have been able to figure out if they were helping you, if they were trying to lead you away, stuff like that. Okay. So they just got quickly kicked out of there and they're like, it's not the Mansi people. All right. Now, by far my favorite theory okay the one that's completely inaccurate and probably not true whatsoever but is interesting nonetheless is that they were killed by the Russian Yeti all right now I know you if you're a skeptic you might be laughing you might be this is so fucking funny how can these dumb people believe that I was a Russian yeti all right hey don't don't talk about the people that believe in the Russian yeti all right you believe in Bigfoot Okay, I know you believe in Bigfoot. Okay, so don't talk shit about people believing a cryptid that's possibly real or not real. All right, so you need to just chill the fuck out, buddy. All right, now the reason some people believe this theory is because in the bolts camera, there was a photo of a dark figure that was hunched over in the woods with well, not in the woods, but nearby in the woods, right, with no facial features. This theory was further boosted when the Discovery Channel made an entire, like, documentary series called The Russian Yeti, The Killer Lives, right? And on top of that, there was a pamphlet that was found inside the tent called Science. In recent years, there has been a heated debate About the existence of the Yeti. Latest evidence indicates that the Yeti lives in the northern Earl Mountains near Mount Orton. And because of these three little things, people, well not three, but like two little things, people do believe that the Yeti killed them. But like I said, there was no signs of a struggle, okay? There were no signs of a struggle found at the scene. So if you take, I think I looked it up. The Russian, well, over in Asia and in Russia, they have um there's three sets of specific Yetis, okay? Um, and the one that happens to be allegedly tied to Russia, I think is the only one that's considered a people eater, right? The other ones, I think, are vegetarian? I could be wrong. I don't know a whole lot about the Russian Yeti, so take this with a grain of salt. But, allegedly, the Yeti that's in Russia does eat people and is around 6 to 7 feet tall, okay? If this thing's tall, he's definitely more jacked than the average human, so he probably weighs a decent amount, right? So, like I said earlier, there would be a struggle. That's why this one is debunked. Personally, for me, because there was no fucking struggle. You would have been able to see a struggle. There would have been more carnage if it was a Yeti trying to eat people. Okay? Because the bodies would have been shredded, ripped in half. But they weren't. Okay? So, that's why I don't think it's a Yeti. Alright? But the final... Theory and the only theory that officially closed this case was from a young prosecutor who lived in Sverdlovsk, and his name is Andrei Kirikov. And in 2019, he ordered a winter expedition to Dylov Pass. Once there, him and his team ran a bunch of tests and experiments. In the dialov area. Andre used the photographs that the Diyalov team took to figure out where to set up his, the tent that they had and you know just to run other tests. He also used historical data to figure out what the weather conditions of that night were that they all died and from that data he was able to figure out that the weather conditions were way worse than anybody had originally thought. He was able to determine that the wind speeds of that night were 65 miles per hour and the outside temperature was negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, from these tests that he ran at the original site, Andre was able to debunk 72 of the 75 possible theories on what happened to the Dyatlov and his crew. Okay, Andre would also come out and tell reporters that a large class of these 75 versions are just conspiracy theories alleging that the authorities were somehow involved in the incident. We have already proven that this is absolutely false. Andre had narrowed it down to three possible causes for the death of these nine humans. The first one was an avalanche. The second one was a hurricane. Don't know how a hurricane can happen in the mountains, but then again, I'm not a scientist, so I have no fucking clue. Okay. And the third was a slab of snow sliding over the tent. Andre also held a press conference in July of 2021, saying that one of these three theories holds the answer. Now, as Andre looked at the evidence from the photos and the tests that he ran, he assumed that what caused all of these deaths was a slab of snow sliding over the tent. And if you don't know what a slab of snow is, it's when a weak layer of snow gives away like get like breaks up breaks apart under a more compact snow and it just kind of slides down the hill or the side of the mountain. Now, to support his theory, he had taken well two photos from the dialob expedition team. And from around 5 p.m. and in this like these two photos that he was looking at he saw that they had cut extremely deep into the snow to pitch their tent and they had picked a spot to offer some protection from the strong winds Andre would go on and say that later on in the evening when the blizzard hit it added more weight onto the already weak snow that you know tent was pitched on and because of that weight it caused the slab of snow to detach from the side of the mountain and slide over the tent causing most of the skiers injuries that they were found with okay so in fear that they thought a full-blown avalanche was about to occur they cut themselves out of the tent with very little clothing on and headed towards the tree line. But unfortunately for the Dyatlov members, that avalanche didn't come and in the pitch black darkness of the mountains, they couldn't find their way back to the tent. And Andre proved this theory at the Dyatlov scene by blindfolding a man and a woman. After the man and the woman were blindfolded, he then led them 90 feet away from the tent and told them to find their way back. And they couldn't. Proving to Andre if two blindfolded people couldn't do it in normal conditions, it would be impossible to do it if there was a blizzard going on. And it being night, right? So Andre also was able to prove that most of the reports from ex- the experts that like looked at the scene in 1959 were wrong. The experts from 1959 said that the slope was at a 15-degree angle, which couldn't cause avalanche formation. But thankfully, with the progress in technology... Andre was able to prove them basically wrong and said that with his studies and his experiments, the slope actually turned out to be at a 25 degree angle, which can actually cause avalanche formation. Andre explained in the same press conference that the nine skiers retreated downhill took shelter under a cedar tree and built that fire that they were found huddled around. Okay, Andre was also able to prove from his experiments and from looking at previous photos from the 1959 expedition that the young trees nearby that fire were icy and wet. So someone climbed up the cedar tree to break branches for the fire. And that's why there was skin and scraps of clothing found on the tree trunk. Now, after they built said fire, those, I guess, the just the weather conditions from what he was saying, from what the research was saying, the weather conditions was just too much for them. And that fire could just not stay hot enough to save them. So the two most poorly dressed out of the group died first and the burned skin on their bodies came from the desperate attempts to seek warmth from the fire. And as far as the piece of flesh that was found in Krivonchenko's mouth, Andre explained that the bite was, f- well, whoa, hold on, I lost my spot. Andre explained that the bite from his finger was actually a result of delirium that allegedly overtakes someone's mind and body as they're dying from hypothermia. Or, he said, it could have been an attempt to test the nerves of his frostbitten hand. Andre also told people at the press conference that their surviving skiers cut the clothes off their dead friends and dressed themselves in the scavenged clothing to stay warm. Then, at some point, the group decided to split up. Three skiers, including Dyatlov, tried to return to the tent and soon froze to death as they struggled uphill. The other four, who were better dressed compared to the other ones, decided to build a snow den to shelter in for the night. Now, for this snow den, they needed really deep snow, which they found in a ravine a couple hundred feet away. But unfortunately, they had picked a spot that kind of laid above the Lozva River, which never freezes. Now, since... It doesn't freeze. It ended up digging a icy tunnel. Under where they started digging. You know the snow den. And as they kept digging out the snow den. And going deeper and deeper. It caused the roof of this icy tunnel. To collapse. And it threw them. You know into the rocky stream bed. Right. And because. Because. They got thrown into the stream bed. All of that snow fell on top of them. And they were unfortunately buried under 10 to 15 feet of snow. Now the pressure of the snow that fell on top of them squished them between the snow and the rocky stream bed causing their traumatic injuries. And according to Andre, the gruesome facial features that they suffered... He said it was probably a result from scavenging animals and from decomposition. Andre then also explained that the radiation that was found on their bodies and on their clothing was a result of the lanterns that they were using when they were camping as, you know, in their tent, okay? And in those specific lanterns that the Dytlov explorers were using, they had traces of thorium which is a radioactive element. Now, it wasn't a lot, but it was just enough, you know, to still be present within the lanterns. Andre also explained to the public that back in 1957, there was a huge nuclear disaster at the Mayak nuclear complex just south of Sverdlovsk, which is now labeled as the world's third worst nuclear nuclear accident and basically to make a long story short a tank of radioactive waste exploded and caused a plume of radioactive smoke that was roughly 200 miles long okay it shot it all up into the air and the wind currents took all of that radioactive plume northwards to the destination where this expedition took place. Andre then closed this press conference by saying, Formally, this is it. The case is closed. Now, after this press conference, with all this information that Andre spilled on them, and very, I guess, factual in a way, if he went up there and stuff like that, the Dialov Memorial Group, the Mancy people, and other locals from the, you know, area of where this expedition took place said that there has never been an avalanche that has ever occurred in this region and that the prosecutors and the scientists that were assigned to the case to figure out what happened their data is all wrong and i'm not trying to be rude but to those people that are like oh can not be a slab avalanche if there's nature's weird people it might not do something, like, let's take volcanoes for a second, right? The one that's in New Zealand, there was a huge thing about it, okay? We're going to get a little bit off topic, but the one in, in oh, fuck, New Zealand, I forgot, I think it's on the northern part of New Zealand, it could be completely wrong, but that active, there was, it was of active volcano And then it went inactive, and it's been inactive for a really long time. And it was so inactive that tourists were able to go to the volcano and walk around it, walk up it, stuff like that. Like that's how inactive it is. One day it just decided to fucking spew out its lava goodness and killed a bunch of fucking people. Okay, so I'm just saying, all right. You might not have ever seen one, but that doesn't mean it can't happen, all right just that's all i'm saying okay i personally think it was um what's his name andre i do think it, i do think andre you know is correct okay it's not the yeti i'm sorry people i want to believe the yeti but it's not the yeti okay it it just it just makes more sense that it was a slab of snow okay now the Dyatlov Memorial Foundation, because they still believe that, you know, Andre and his team were, were, whoa, were wrong, I just burped, sorry, and they still believe that the nuclear, te- it was a nuclear test gone wrong, and that, you know, Russians killed them because they weren't supposed to know what was going on up there. So, the Dyatlov Memorial Foundation still wants the Russian government to reopen the case And reinvestigate it. But as far as I could tell. It has not been reopened or anything like that. Okay. And to this day. People still go out to visit height 1079. And pay their respects to the dialogue expedition team. Which actually leads us into our final story of today. Because in February of 2021. A group of nine went missing on the same exact expedition that Dialov took in 1959. But this, thankfully, this story ended a lot better, okay? It's kind of but it's kind of eerie, you know. Dialov started in February. They started in February it was an exact group of 9 and Dialov's and group was an exact like 9. So this is this is kind of weird. It's like I don't know how to say it. Like it's like a redemption, I guess. I don't f- no not really a redemption, but it's like a good the good Diet trip was the evil trip. This was the good trip if that makes fucking sense. I hope it makes sense. Okay. But what happened in that expedition in 2021 Basically, six tourists from Moscow were led to Dyatlov Pass by three tour guides. And somewhere along the way, they lost contact with their family and friends and couldn't contact anybody for help because the nearby satellite dish was broken. Now, one of the tourists would tell reporters that, you know, the weather got so unpredictable that they ended up on a frozen lake where they were eventually rescued by you know, fellow Russians, okay? And to be honest, there's not a whole lot of information on this story that I could physically find, because one, most of the articles were in Russian, and two, I don't speak Russian, so I had to settle for websites that just had a broad, general idea of what happened, okay? So, that's it for this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I don't know what else. I'm thirsty, right? I'm kind of parched. I'm not going to lie. That's why my voice is, sounds a little weird right now. That's why if you notice, it started deeper in the beginning and then it got really, really high pitched. and I'm talking kind of like a girl or a 12 year old boy. That's why. But I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, what do we got going on this week? Minus Thanksgiving. I'm going to do a Thanksgiving special, okay? So be on the lookout for that. That'll be fun. It's going to be a good one. It's going to be another true crime story just like last year, okay? And then this Sunday I'm doing a another serial killer, All right, Harold Shipman. He's an interesting little cat. So it's going to be fun. But I'm going to let you guys go here. Um... Follow me on Instagram if you want to. It's the Rainy Day Horror Show. Or if you want to get on my personal Instagram, it's Dusty McValls. All right. But other than that, have a good rest of your week. Have a good rest of your weekend. Okay. Remember to stay frosty, stay foxy, and most importantly, the most important thing on this planet stay safe, you beautiful peacocks. I love y'all. Deuces. <laughs>